I'm reading from John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm not sure what actually showed up in the bulletin as a scripture reading, but I had to change that because I had this whole introduction that was based on the passage that was originally going to be read, and I had to completely cut that out of the sermon. And like I said a little bit earlier, by the time I get to the end, you're probably going to be convinced that I didn't cut anything, but believe me, I did. And um, this uh, passage is so full and it's really hard to address it all in a single sermon, but uh, this morning our series brings us to John chapter 6, which has 71 verses, and because of that, I'm not going to be able to speak to every last detail of the passage. But having said that, the first 21 verses are stories that are very familiar to us. To begin with, John addresses the feeding of the 5,000 as we often refer to this, which is the only miracle other than the resurrection of Jesus, which found its way into all four of the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all deal with this story with a little bit different emphasis, but it's one of those amazing things where the level of agreement is not such that we feel like, well, they were colluding with each other and making this thing up, the way that some liberal theologians have suggested, but rather this is something that actually happened, and as they wrote of it later on in life, they were giving the details that had really stood out to them. So in both verses 2 and 4, what we're told is that the group that had come to Jesus at this time is a large crowd, or even a great multitude, as some translations have it. And when we are told in verse 10 of John chapter 6, the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, we need to bear in mind that that number 5,000 was just the men. Matthew even tells us this in his gospel. He wrote, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And so we believe, and I believe rightfully so, that we should probably be talking not about the feeding of the 5,000 here, but more like the feeding of the 25,000. There may not have been quite that many. There might also have been quite a bit more in terms of the women and the children who accompanied the men when they came to Jesus on this day. And so in terms of the creational aspect of this sign, what Jesus was doing, 
when he took five loaves and two small fish and fed this whole multitude of people, it goes far beyond what most of us have imagined, and we've imagined quite a lot. This would be as if Jesus fed every single person in the town of High River, if you assumed that every single person in the town of High River came with a friend who was from out of town. It was big. It was really big, and a lot of people were aware of it. That's probably why it made its way into all four Gospels. When Jesus changed the water into wine, by comparison, it appears that most of the partygoers were just completely and blissfully unaware of where this good wine came from. And we're told in John chapter 2 that only his disciples believed in him. But here, in John 6, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the prophet, in other words, spoken of by God in Deuteronomy chapter 18, when he said to Moses, I will raise up for them, for Israel, a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself, says God, will require it of him. So just keep that in mind, that last bit. When God promised to raise up a prophet who the people of Israel understood to be the Messiah who was to come, God specifically said, when he comes, he will speak my word. And because he will be speaking my word, Anyone who hears him and refuses to believe will be held accountable by God himself. It's an important thing that comes up a little bit later on. But when these people see the sign and they say, this is indeed the prophet, they're saying basically, surely this is indeed the Messiah. And that fact that they were acknowledging to some extent Jesus as the Messiah who was to come and the proximity of this miracle to Passover is probably the reason why, as Jesus perceived, they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Remember the promise was that God would raise up a prophet like Moses And at the first institution of the Passover, it was Moses who led the people out of slavery in Egypt and up towards the promised land. Here at this Passover season, as Jesus is performing miracles, making bread come from heaven, another miracle that parallels something that happened in Moses' day. Evidently, the people are thinking, well, maybe this is the next Moses. This is the one who will deliver us from our bondage to the Roman Empire and who will make us a nation again. They were about to come and take him by force to make him king, which is kind of an interesting expression if you stop to think about it. Usually when someone is taken by force, it's not to make him king. But again, it wasn't time. As we saw earlier in the Gospel of John, when Jesus, knowing that his hour had not yet come, moved in certain directions, here again, he knows that it's not time for him to become king, and especially not by that means. So John tells us he withdrew to the mountain by himself. 
And later that night, he implemented phase two of his escape, crossing the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum by walking on the water until somewhere out in the sea, he encountered his disciples who were trying to get across by a much more conventional way and decided to join them in the boat and bring them safely on to Capernaum. Now, Matthew and Mark both present more detail on the story of Jesus walking on the water. Uh, Matthew is the one who tells us that extra part about how Peter tried to go to Jesus walking on the water. John is less concerned with all of the details about this incident than he is with the confrontation that gets set up by this miracle. See, the next day, that crowd that great multitude that we saw back at the beginning of the chapter who had eaten the loaves and the fishes that Jesus provided, they made their way, some around the shore of the lake, others by boat across the lake to pursue Jesus all the way to Capernaum. And in verse 25, when they found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Reflecting on this question and Jesus' response, John Calvin wrote, Christ does not reply to the question put to him. He doesn't explain how he got there or when he got there or anything of the kind, which would have been fitted to show them his power in having come thither by a miracle. That is a hard word to say, thither. I was concerned about that earlier when I was reading this, but I did it. Um, they had come, Jesus had come thither by a miracle. But on the contrary, he chides them for throwing themselves forward without consideration, for they were not acquainted with the true and proper reason of what he did, because they sought in Christ something else than Christ himself. In more recent times, we've talked about how some people come to Jesus seeking his gifts and not the giver, Calvin said the very same thing in his commentary on John. They sought in Christ something else than Christ himself. And this is the key to understanding Jesus' response to these people in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, so whenever we read that, it comes up in John on several occasions. He's saying, this, I I really, really mean this. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So when we read in verse 14 that they saw the sign and declared, this must be the prophet, there was still something disingenuous about that profession. They were saying, this must be the prophet, but they didn't really understand who Jesus was or the nature of why he was doing these signs. And I think this is probably part of what Jesus perceived about their desire to make him king. As I mentioned, it wasn't time yet. It wasn't time for the confrontation that would come in Jerusalem when he actually did become king, and they had no idea that he would become king by dying on a cross. But even aside from that, These people were not seeking a king to be lord of their lives. They didn't want to make Jesus king so that he could command them, tell them the word of God, and then expect obedience on their part. They wanted him to be king because it was evident that he could pull bread out of thin air, and wouldn't that be awesome? 
a king who, instead of taxing people to make the money to give it away to other causes, could just pull food out of the air and pass it out to people whenever he wanted. It's also interesting, and I think that this speaks to the way that many approach miracles even to this day, that the amount of work required to pursue Jesus all the way to Capernaum in the hope of getting more free bread actually was more. It was more work than what it would have taken them to actually just procure bread by the ordinary means. Maybe it was really good bread. I, I would assume it probably was the best bread they had ever eaten, but still they were seeking the gift and not the giver. And that explains the next words out of Jesus' mouth in verse 27. He said, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Now, the dynamics of the ensuing conversation are, are very similar to the conversations that we've looked at between Jesus and Nicodemus and Jesus and the woman at the well. On both of those prior occasions, Jesus came to the conversation talking about spiritual, eternal things, heavenly things, as he described his words to Nicodemus. But the people that he was speaking to, Nicodemus and the woman at the well, couldn't see the kingdom of God. They couldn't see beyond that physical, temporal situation in which they found themselves. That's why when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, well, Nicodemus asked an obvious question for someone who was thinking, well, how could a person actually be born again? Jews didn't believe in reincarnation. So Nicodemus asked him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus is talking about something spiritual, and Nicodemus is thinking of something very earthly and physical. And when the woman at the well was offered living water by Jesus, she said to him, sir, give me this water. Here's why so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. He's talking about the Holy Spirit who would spring up in those who believed in him and give them eternal life. And she's thinking about what would life be like if I didn't have to waste all this time walking out to the well every single day. Here in John chapter 6 as well, Jesus is speaking about the food that endures to eternal life, the true bread of heaven. He's speaking about himself. But the crowd, this great multitude who had followed him to Capernaum, is just thinking about those lovely fish sandwiches that he served them the night before. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And it's at least possible that in this context, when they're saying that, they're kind of asking for, how can we have the power to make bread and fish appear out of more or less nowhere. Tell us how to do the work. You, you claim that you are doing the work of God when you do these signs. Tell us how to do the work of God. That's at least a possibility. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. This is what you should be concerned with. This is really all you need that you believe 
in him whom he has sent. The work of God with which we need to concern ourselves is trusting in, believing in, following Jesus Christ. Now, what follows makes us almost hopeful for another mass conversion event like what we saw at Samaria, verses 30 through 34 of John chapter 6. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? That sounds good, but then watch where they go right away. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's kind of hint, hint, you know. Um, Moses gave our fathers manna, and it was really awesome, apparently. Tasted like honey cakes roasted with coriander, and people loved it so much they only complained every day for 40 years when they had to eat it. But these people want it. They want more bread from heaven. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. What sign are you going to do? And then in verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. We touched on this before, but I think it's so important. So many times when we consider miracles today, we, we have this sense, well, if somebody would just do some miracles... Wouldn't that be incredible? Surely then everybody would believe. And what the history of modern evangelicalism tells us is that if somebody can do miracles or even claims to be able to do miracles, what usually happens is the focus comes off of God and onto the person. And then everybody spends their energy chasing that person around, hoping they'll be the one in the wheelchair that gets brought up to the front of the church and who stands up and walks. If you want to read how that works, read Johnny, um, Johnny Erickson Tata's story about how she pursued faith healers and people who claimed to be able to do miracles and was tucked away at the back with the real cripples while others received so-called healing up at the front, or listen to anything by Justin Peters as he talks about the same thing, a faithful Christian pastor and evangelist who has had cerebral palsy all of his life and who went to these people looking for miracles because they had the name of being able to do this thing and instead found nothing from them. Jesus is saying, Moses didn't even do miracles. Never mind some of these other people. Moses did not do miracles. He did not give you the bread from heaven. In fact, what got Moses into trouble and kept him out of the promised land was on that second occasion when God told him, go to the rock and speak to it, and I will provide water. And Moses gets up in front of the people, and he says, you stubborn, obstinate people, do I have to bring water from this rock for you? And when Moses takes the credit, God says, that's it. You can't bring water from a rock, Moses. You can't make bread fall down. From... You're not even going to go into the promised land because of this. Moses did not give you bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Again, he's saying, the bread of God is me, the Son of Man, standing here right before you. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Because they're still thinking of the bread that he made the day before. 
And his answer is the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. It's one of several I am passages too in the gospel of John where Jesus basically takes the name of God. So we read it, I am the bread of life. But the way that the people in Jesus' day heard this, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, they associated that with the name of the covenant God. I am who I am is your glorious name. We, we sang that a little bit earlier in the service. And when Jesus says this, sometimes they take up stones to stone him because they see that he is claiming to be almighty God. He said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And that has absolutely nothing to do with our stomachs or our sense of thirstiness. He is not talking about earthly things. He is speaking of spiritual and eternal things. This is just another way of saying what we've seen so often. I, I try to bring it in almost every week, and I do that on purpose. From John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Just a few verses earlier, John said, if we tried to write down everything that Jesus said and did, the world itself wouldn't hold all the books. So there was a lot that Jesus said and did that didn't make it into any of the Gospels, never mind the Gospel of John. But these are written, John says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And all through the Gospel of John, we run into different expressions of this same equation. In the verse I just read, so that you may believe... And on the other side of the equal sign, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Having life in his name is equated here with being the children of God. And receiving and believing are also one and the same. Similarly, in John 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, born again is the same as the expression that Jesus uses in other places when he talks about believing and receiving. Being born again and believing and receiving are the same thing. And seeing the kingdom of God is equivalent to having eternal life and becoming the children of God. Later in verse 16 of chapter 3, we all know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And again, the, the expressions on both sides of that are equated one with another. Believing and being born again are the same thing. And seeing the kingdom of God is equivalent to should not perish, but have eternal life. Speaking to the woman at the well in Samaria in John 4, it was whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And now in John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So coming to Jesus, 
receiving Jesus, looking on the Son, drinking the water that he gives, and being born again or born of the Spirit. These are all just different ways of saying believe, trust, have faith. And for those who believe and trust and have faith, seeing the kingdom of God, becoming the children of God, not hungering spiritually, never thirsting spiritually, passing from death to life and having eternal life, they are also equivalent expressions that speak to what it means to be saved. If we believe, then we are saved. If we receive Christ, then we are given the right to become the children of God. If we come and drink of the water that he gives and eat of the true bread from heaven, we will never spiritually hunger or thirst again. doesn't mean that you're not going to want lunch. It just means that that nagging sense that something isn't what it ought to be is going to be filled. Truly, truly. I say to you, Jesus said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Sometimes when I was growing up, people would talk about receiving Christ, and there were some really interesting interpretations that were put on that idea of receiving Christ that often involved praying a prayer or walking an aisle or some physical activity. And not that those things are necessarily bad, but to receive Christ is to believe in him. It is to trust in him. It is to feed on him and to drink of the water that he gives, the Holy Spirit. We have its equal again in John chapter 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the heart of the gospel. It's what it's about. It is the heart of this book. We can go digging through all the chapters of John and look for all kinds of theological truths, and they are there to be found, and it is worth the time it takes. But at the bottom line, John wrote this book so that people would hear the word of Christ and would come to him and be saved. This is a heart. This is the point. We're going to come back to it over and over and over again as we go through the rest of the book of John. And if you have not yet come to Jesus, then you are being called to him right now. If you have not drunk deeply of the living water, or eaten of the bread of life, if you have not heard his word before and believed in the one who sent him, then as we noted a couple of weeks back, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. And to borrow an expression from Paul, we implore you on behalf of Christ, we beg you, be reconciled to God. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Now sadly, as we see here in John chapter 6, not all who hear this word will accept and believe. 
Remember, we started the chapter with a large crowd, a great multitude of people who had sought out Jesus because they thought that Jesus was really in the business of addressing their felt needs. And sometimes that's how the gospel is presented today. That God is there, Jesus is there to do what I want, to do what I need. So come to Jesus to have your needs met. And that's what these people thought too. But when they came to him the second time, looking for bread, the food that perishes, instead of giving them more bread, instead of doing another sign, he began to speak to them of the bread of life. And this same crowd then grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So they came looking to have their felt needs met. Jesus speaks the word of God to them, and they don't like it. They would rather have more fish sandwiches. They would rather see some more people healed or some more demons cast out or something along those lines. And all Jesus seems interested in doing is speaking to them. But remember what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 18 of this prophet that they were expecting. Whoever will not listen to my words, that's God speaking, God the Father, whoever will not listen to my words that he, this prophet, Jesus, will speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So when they stumbled over the words that he had spoken, refusing to believe, Jesus didn't just do another miracle to see if that would change their minds. He answered them with another aspect of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The word, by the way, in that expression, unless the Father who sent me draws him, is a Greek word that would be used, for instance, to describe the act of drawing water out of a well. The person who wants the water lowers in the rope and the bucket and the bucket gets filled and then he actively pulls that bucket of water out of the well. That's the word here for draw. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And if the Father who sent me draws him, I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is not saying that God tries to lure or woo people to come to him by offering them all the stuff that they want from this world. He's saying when God chooses to save, he draws people to himself. God pulls people. God brings people. And there's going to be much, much more to say about this on another occasion. We'll talk about it a little bit tonight, but when we get to John 10, we'll get back into this subject again. But for this morning, notice the rope that the Father uses when he draws. Verses 45 and 46. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. And then again, the promise of the gospel in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. 
So we don't need to get too wrapped up in this idea of no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's important. And we need to understand that so that when we contemplate our own salvation, we have a very clear sense that it is 0% of us. We can lay claim to nothing in terms of coming to God and being saved by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So we need to realize that. We also need to realize that the rope that God uses to pull people to him is the word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So what do we do? How do we present the gospel to people that maybe in our life who don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, we make sure that they just get the word over and over and over again. I used to spend some time, I I think I've been blacklisted now, um, but I used to actually answer the door and talk to Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and some of the people who would knock on my door and want to share their idea of the gospel with me, and I would welcome them in and just say, sure, let's have a conversation. And I didn't try to argue with them. If you ever want to learn the arguments that you need to know to defeat some cult member who's standing on your doorstep on a Saturday morning, I I can tell you how to do that. It's just pointless, unless you really want to win the argument. If instead what you're hoping for is the opportunity to actually share the gospel of Jesus Christ with these people who don't know it but thought they did and cared enough to come to your house to try to tell you, then what you need to do is just keep putting the word in front of them. I would listen to all of the arguments that they would throw my way, and then I'd just ask a question, but I'd frame the question in a way that I could read a chapter of Scripture or something like that, just put God's word in front of them. Because God's word is the mechanism through which the Spirit works to create repentance and faith and to bring people to Him. I've known people who were talking with unbelievers who said, well, don't, don't keep pulling that Bible stuff. I don't believe in the Bible. I remember a missionary that I heard a long time ago. He had been in northern Africa, and he talked about if I found myself in a duel with someone and I pulled out a fine Damascus blade, I wouldn't put it away because the guy I was dueling with said, I don't believe that thing will cut. But we do that with the scriptures. The scriptures are the means by which God works through the Holy Spirit to bring people to himself and then somebody comes along, well, I don't believe the Bible is the word of God. Oh, well, let me just put that away and try to talk to you on your terms. Don't do it. Just keep bringing the Bible in, one verse at a time, if that's the best you can do, because that's how God brings people to himself. And everyone who believes has eternal life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your father ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Of course, this isn't exactly what they wanted to hear. In verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And we might have been tempted to go for something a little more seeker-sensitive, a little more attractional than the word that Jesus spoke, saying, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. But it seems likely to me that Jesus just might have a better understanding of this process than we do. And so instead of saying, oh, I'm, wait, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to confuse you with that talk of eating my flesh and drinking my blood. I'm sorry. Let's talk about something less unpleasant. Instead, he doubled down. He replied to them in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And when he says that, eat the flesh of and drink the blood of the Son of man, again, he is speaking of spiritual things. Christians are not cannibals, and cannibals are not Christians. And we do not believe that when I stand here at the table and say, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had broken it, he said, this is my body, that somehow the bread becomes anything other than just bread. This is not talking about communion or the Lord's Supper, but it's talking about the same thing that the Lord's Supper is pointing to, that when we come to Jesus, when we receive him, when we believe in him, when we drink the living water, when we eat the bread of life, then by faith we appropriate the life that God provides through the Son of God. And we have the promise, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. If you as a Christian find that hard to hear, understand it was way harder for this crowd who listened to him, these first century Jews from Galilee who were there at the synagogue in Capernaum when he said these things. And that's why verse 60 when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I will be talking about what comes here between this part and the end of the chapter this evening. If the Lord is willing, we'll come back to it again when we're in John 10. But for now, notice their response after Jesus again comes to them and says, no, this is how it is. I am the way, the truth, and the life summarize it in verse 66 after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him the word for disciple here is kind of a generic it just means student so when jesus in the great commission says go and make disciples he's not implying that we can in some way actually make people into believers he's saying go and teach them and let them hear. And some disciples will hear and believe and be saved and have eternal life. Others will hear and struggle and stumble and eventually turn back and no longer walk with him. And the sense of this in Greek is this was a final thing for these people. They turned away and they did not come back. 
So when John chapter 6 began, there was this great multitude chasing after Jesus in the hope of miracles and signs and free food and whatever other gifts they thought he might offer. But in the end, Jesus didn't offer them that. He offered them himself. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And he offered them the words which the Father gave him to speak. And for that, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And in verse 67, as far as we know, Jesus was right back to where he had started. Before the crowd, before the multitude, before any of that. As far as we know, all that was left at that point was the twelve. There's a church growth movement for you. And he turned to the twelve and he said to them, do you want to go away as well? And again, Peter's answer gets back to the heart of the gospel. It is the whole point of this chapter and the whole point of this book. Verses 68 and 69 of John chapter 6. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Jesus said, do you guys want to leave too? And Peter said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words that God uses to create faith and repentance and to bring people to himself. And in verse 69, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's a gospel. Jesus has the words of eternal life. Like God said on the mountain of transformation, or transfiguration, this is my son, listen to him. Just be quiet, be still, and listen to the word of God because these are the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So hear the words of Christ to believe them and share them. Put this word out there for those who do not know, for this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we pray that your word would speak to each one of our hearts in the various places where we find ourselves this morning. That, Father, you would create faith, you would strengthen faith, you would give a determination to take this word to others and to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those who do not believe. That we may point people to Jesus so that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him would find in him eternal life and light and salvation. We pray in his name. Amen.